welcome to another episode of the Saxo Market Call podcast. Today we are going to talk equities, and that means that I'm joined by the great Peter Garnery in the studio. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Hi, son. I'm doing great. Great nice to be to here. Hear. And I'm so happy that you are here, because otherwise this would have not made a lot of sense. But today we're going to talk about equities, and I think primarily we're going to talk about regions. Yeah. But just to get it sort of out of the way, obviously some people say, wait a minute, isn't it still earnings season? And I guess it is to some extent, yeah, but uh, we only have the last few coming out this week, right? We are at around uh, 90% as of uh, yesterday, uh, which was Monday, um, because we're recording here on Tuesday. So um, uh, 90% of the S&P 500 has rep- uh, of the companies have reported. Um, so yeah, we, we're getting to the end of it. And um, that's also why we've talked about internally in our team, we're shifting more to a macro focus now. And then you know the next batch of uh, earnings will be the Q1 earnings and they will be out in, in mid-April. And if we look at this week, there are a couple of earnings that are, I think, worth uh, looking at. Um, we have Salesforce and Snowflake, which are two quite popular technology stocks, Salesforce competing with Microsoft in in, um, in enterprise application uh, software. Some might know Salesforce, and they also recently, a couple of years back, bought, uh, they bought um, Slack, which a lot of people might uh, have heard about. And then Snowflake is this um, data data lake, data analytics, uh, you know, cloud company, uh, which was became... One of, it was one of the hottest IPOs a couple of years back when it when it IPO'd and it was a lot of headlines because Berkshire Hathaway was one of the one of the large shareholders that participated in the initial public offering, which was quite unusual actually. So um, so that was that was quite interesting. But uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I I, I said uh, yeah, I, th- I think we'll just leave it at that for now, and then obviously if something crazy happens this week, we'll pick it up next week and and, sure. and discuss what happened, and maybe we're also gonna look back at the entire earnings season and how that performed. I think another interesting angle to equities for 2024 so far is to look at the regional divergence because it is pretty significant when you look across the board. Uh, if if we just start with China, we've talked a lot about China, you and I, but I've also talked a lot with Charu about it yeah. uh, from a macro perspective. It's been under a lot of pressure uh, in the beginning of the year, but then all of a sudden after the Lunar New Year, we saw this... Uh, bounce back in in their equities. Uh, some of it was related to the fact that more people traveled uh, during the Lunar New Year than expected. But it seems like there's still some structural issues over there. What's your take on China as an equity region right now? Yeah, I think if we zoom out and take a very long-term view on it, there is no question that, we talked about this before, son, that China is facing similar dynamics as we saw in Japan back in the uh, in the late 1980s, like a balance sheet recession, which is extremely difficult to deal with. Um, and it's a balance sheet recession that comes about from a real estate crisis, by the way. So leveraging up the system, it's extremely painful. And, and the natural response is just like Japan is, and which is China is doing right now, which which is basically trying to bail out uh, the, uh, the real estate sector and the banks so it, you don't have an implosion. But the problem is that it doesn't clear the system, so it just drags on the problem for quite some time. Uh, it's extremely painful, very, uh, very uh, bad for productivity long term. And then you have the demographic drags, you have the geopolitical uh, risk and tensions. So from a long term perspective, and that's one of the reasons we've we've talked about China in a in a negative sense for quite some time. The reason why we want to talk about it today is, as you said, 
you know, Chinese equities have rebounded. There are a lot of things that the Chinese government is doing to try to kickstart the economy and stabilize their financial markets. They're also doing a lot of things that are destabilizing. There was actually a, an incident last week. Uh, was it last week? Maybe it was a week before. But very recently with a huge uh, quant meltdown where they, they they did some specific regulation in their market that it created a huge um, distortions like, you know, beyond 10 sigma events in, in a lot of the stocks and that the, uh, the factors of these quant funds are trading. And that has added to this image that, you know, is very difficult to analyze and interpret what the Chinese government is doing. Um which creates a very difficult operating environment. But we have seen a turnaround in the equity in the equity market in China, and they're doing a lot of things. And in March, there will be this plenum where they will, where the the party, um, the CCP, will most likely try to unveil some plans for what it intends to do to get the Chinese economy going. And I have been saying that I'm sitting a little bit with a sense that there is a tactical trade to be made. Uh, going long Chinese equities in in a shorter time period. I, I don't think we are in a position where we would say, yeah, add Chinese equities strategically to your portfolio. I don't think that's where we are. I think we are in a we are in a phase where there are some technical opportunities in in China. And and just to let everyone know, we just checked it before we went into the studio zone, and I think the Chinese equity market, depending on whether you look at at the Hong Kong or the mainland uh, market, it's sort of flat for the year in, yeah. lo- in local currencies. So if you were to to take like a short term tactical view on it, obviously we can't come with any recommendations and we won't do that. But are there any specific sectors you feel like this opportunity could could stem from, or is it more generally the market since it's been flat and and soon we're going to look at some of the other regions that 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 have definitely not been flat for the year. Um, I think on the tactical trade, I am um, you know. Some of those industries that are doing very well are those that are very well supported by the government. We had Lee Auto actually the other day, um, yesterday, bouncing 16%, uh, doing pretty well despite the uh, the price war there. Um, but I, I would say two things. So I think a tactical trade in China is probably done the best either via you know, some type of index instrument or uh, an ETF on China, on the Chinese equity market per se. On the actual industries I've long been in favor I don't I don't I don't really like that there are technology sector because I think the government is taking a very proactive very state interventionist approach towards the technology sector they see it as an government instrument um, I like the consumer stocks a little bit more um, so you have the, some of those companies like enter sports which is basically their equivalent of Nike you don't have a lot of those consumer stocks you have Medea some of you have probably seen them. They they advertise heavily in Premier League football matches here in Europe. Um, they do everything in in consumer appliances. Um, so like Electrolux from from Sweden, etc. Was one of their competitors. Uh, World Whirlpool from the from the US. Um, those type of companies, I think, are left more alone and to and allowed to be operated as a private profit-seeking enterprise because you know. You're not threatening anyone politically in China. You're not threatening any uh, foreign companies by selling shoes and and refrigerators. So if you can do that efficiently, there then there is then there's a case to be made. So I think the consumer stocks in China is is probably where you would look if you wanted to take a long term long term view. But again, that's not my position. I don't I don't like Chinese equities long term. I think this balance sheet recession dynamic will linger for for quite some time. And it's definitely something that we're going to touch upon again because it is obviously very important with a big economy like China how that is uh, developing for the rest of the world. Let's stay in the Asian region and look at another big economy, Japan, which has just been performing remarkably well this year. 
I think we looked at it just before, and it's around, up around 17% for, for the year. Yeah, in yen, yen terms. Yen terms, yeah, yeah. all right. But what do we attribute that? Obviously, like historically in the last, oh, I would say 25 years, Japan has been a struggling market up and down, but 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 now it seems that something is, is finally clicking over there. Well, you have you have a um, you have a combination of factors driving this. So first of all, you have the the central bank policies are driving a weak yen policy, and for a country which is heavily export oriented, that's positive. A lot of the major stocks in the Japanese indices are massive exporters like Toyota, just to give you an example. Um, so it benefits the earnings and profitability of these companies enormously because all the profits they earn overseas, when it's translated into yen, it gets inflated by the weaker currency. So that's one of the drivers. Um, and the central bank policy drives speculation as well, I think, to a new level in Japan we haven't seen before because I think there has been, and you know, there's a time element to this. So China, China uh, sorry, Japan's equity market went into this hibernation after the, the bubble burst in the late 80s. And it wasn't until around 2012 with uh, Shinzo Abe, the, the, the prime minister at the time, that launched his economics that really kick-started a, a lot of reforms. So more women participated in the labor market. They were more open to immigration to offset some of the demographic headwinds. Um, they were doing something on VAT and other types of taxes. They were, doing, they were becoming more business-friendly. At the same time, you had a, an increasing amount of activist investors from the U.S. coming into the Japan and pressuring Japanese companies to buy back more shares, be more capital efficient, don't have all this cross-ownership. Uh, and then combined with this low interest rate environment that the Bank of Japan has kept in Japan despite all the other central banks around the world have sort of increased their interest rates, I think it had created a sense of the Japanese investor that, all right, I'm not getting a lot on my JDBs, the government bonds. Um, the currency is not appreciating so I'm, I'm actually left to speculate in the in the stock market so i think it has we're seeing some animal spirits and then the final factor i think is the is the whole uh, approach by a lot of european and u.s companies by reducing their manufacturing footprint in china and they they definitely pivoting towards uh japan as sort of a, a location in the far east that is politically more uh, secure from a u.s european perspective and um, and 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 maybe not too expensive because that's also the story about China that you know China's success has also meant that a lot of their workers have increased or demanded higher higher wage growth uh, or more wages over the t over the years and, and China is still competitive but it's not as competitive on wages as it was uh, decades back. And obviously, uh, climbing that much begs the question whether it can continue going up. Um, I guess we'll talk valuation a little bit later when we've been through the region. So let's let's keep it for that. But right. definitely, uh, an interesting question there. Uh, let's then move to to the to to the eurozone. Uh, we've seen Euro European equities climb around seven percent this year. Uh, relatively fine, uh, or well, pretty good actually. With two months in, into the year, uh, I'd have to say, what's been what's been the main storyline here in uh, in Europe? Well, defense. Uh, has been doing extremely well. Um, I know we're going to talk about that. Um, yes. Semiconductors have also contributed quite uh, quite a bit. Um, we have ASML uh, and other uh, Infineon, uh, other semiconductor companies. We have an extremely strong healthcare sector in the, in Europe, and Novo Nordisk and and some of the major players, uh, uh, Roche, uh, Roche in uh, in Switzerland. Um, we have Novartis in Switzerland. We have. Um, 
GlaxoSmith Klein and AstraZeneca out of London uh, or England is doing pretty well. So so that has been and 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 the luxury has has been not dragging down the market too much. So uh, I, you know those are some of the contributing factors, and and then also there has been a little bit of a rebound in 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 some of the green stocks, not all of them. So I think that that's painting a picture that that Europe is doing okay, and then also in terms of valuation. Japan and U.S. is getting much more stressed, uh, or sorry, uh, stretched. So, but we can come come back to that. Yeah, and you mentioned defense. Let's just stay there for a little bit because we earlier this week or was it last week, late last week? I think uh, we saw Sweden. It was yesterday. It was yesterday. Yesterday. Yeah. Well, time flies. Yeah. What do you know? Uh, we actually saw that Sweden was finally approved as uh, the newest member of uh, of 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 NATO, and. Um, Obviously, that comes with the uh, with the notion that that Sweden actually has a relatively strong army when you look at it from a European perspective. Um, but obviously, we're in a in a macroeconomic or micro political situation in geopolitical rather situation in Europe where defense is getting increasingly important, and I guess that translates to the to the stock market as well. Uh, yeah, and and it's it's a it's a super important story because the war in Ukraine will, will is uh, is still a big factor, and it was the war in Ukraine that triggered both Finland, first Finland, and now Sweden to uh, to join NATO, and Sweden, as you say, is an important factor for Europe in terms of weapons uh, manufacturing. They have a lot of capabilities, um, and and it puts more even more focus on um, on the defense. And I wrote a I wrote a. Um, an equity note yesterday, which you can find on our trading platform, but it's also available on on the web on our website under home.saxo under inspiration, where we showed that the, our defense basket is actually the best performing basket, and and that is that's you know it's even the case with the U.S. defense stocks included because those are not the ones that are that are rallying; it's the def- the European ones. So had we had we created a sub defense basket which was only from Europe. It would have by far been the best performing uh, basket um, this year. So there's a lot of momentum. You can argue maybe there's a little bit too much momentum. I wrote about Leonardo. They are reporting uh, this week uh, on Thursday, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. And and I think in the case of Leonardo, it I, I think the market is 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 has moved into a state where we're just buying everything we can find that smells of defense in Europe, and then we don't look at the business because. It's actually not Leonardo that seems to be benefiting the most from the increasing military budgets. It's more like companies like BAE Systems or, or Rheinmetall, um, some of the French players. So, um, so it, it potentially becoming a little bit dangerous. So, I would definitely advise people or investors, listeners out there, to reconsider how you approach the, uh, the defense uh, story. But I will say, I mean, if you look at Rheinmetall, the biggest German one, I mean, the market cap. Could easily do five x uh, before it, it. It no, it's not a recommendation. The reason why I'm saying five, and I should explain this, is because if you look at the market valuation and you compare it to some of the big ones in the U.S., it could go up five x and then get to the same size in Europe. And if uh, sorry, as the biggest ones in in the U.S. like uh, RTX or uh, Lockheed Martin. And I think we we saw just the news, uh, son. That, mm. Like Poland's foreign minister said that they they're going to you know they already close to four, I think four four and a half percent of GDP is spent on military and and they didn't see any obstacles for why not pushing it to eight percent. So it's just a lot of money flowing into this sector. Yeah, and I mean if you look at it uh, contrary to to China, where maybe the long term perspective is 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 challenging. Um, obviously we don't know that we don't know what the future looks like, but 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 building a narrative now for the future, I guess it's more realistic to look at the idea that that defense will remain important for Europe. I mean, we 
seemed a little bit when when Russia invaded Ukraine that we we got caught caught offhanded that we sort of just just let our our um, army and defense budget uh, at uh, to, to the side and then basically forgotten to to make sure that what we had was functioning but but it seems like we're probably not going to make that mistake again and and that will of course uh, most likely translate into to to european defense stocks still being relevant for 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 the foreseeable future at least i mean if you look at the if you look at the uh, the uh, consensus estimates for Rheinmetall in germany just to take it as an example we're talking about plus seven uh, plus 17 percent annual growth rates uh, you know, in 24, 25, 26. So there's a lot of growth coming for uh, for, for these companies. Um, it's going to be quite exciting. And, 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 and before we leave the subject, as I said to you, Sam, before we went into the studio, I, I also, I, I, you know, this narrative that is building in the uh, in the media that, you know, Europe is super dependent on on the U.S. Uh, blah blah blah, and and you know we had the same type of analysis when Russia cut the the cord in terms of natural gas to Europe. Well, Europe would plunge into a deep depression, and they cannot live without uh, Russian natural gas. And fast forward two years, you know, natural gas prices are almost lower than they 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 were in the months leading up to the invasion, and it seems like the situation has come pretty much under control. And I think actually that we are underestimating uh, Europe again. That if it if it becomes a a supranational priority among the EU countries to ramp up, and you see how fast it has gone for from Poland. For Poland, also Finland is is ramping up military production. You have uh, the Czech Republic with an extraordinary set of capabilities to uh, increase military production, and Germany haven't even got really started yet moving. And we know the Germans. I mean, as when they move, they move efficiently and and can be can be quite fast. So. And I know it's a, there's a big political game going on. Uh, I just I just actually think that um, I think actually Europe has the capabilities to uh, to move faster than we believe and actually been able to stand on their own feet. And it's interesting that it's it's did, I mean if we go ten years back, it was more or less unethical to consider investing in these kind of companies. But now it's 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 just an opportunity, and it almost feels like it's something you have to do to kind of support the safety of Europe. Yeah, everyone talks about maybe it's not ESG, it's ESGD, right? Yeah, exactly. For, de- for defense, because you cannot you cannot do all the things you want in a in a society if you if your if your borders are not safe and if you're under threat from a, from an adversary. So it's um, yeah, exactly. Peter, time flies. Let's move uh, quickly to the US. Uh, obviously, they always get a lot of attention, so we can't do this without talking about them but actually looking at these regions it it has been uh, i wouldn't say a disappointing one but it has definitely performed uh, less well than especially japan and close to europe uh, the s&p 500 up around six percent for the year what's uh, and and this is where we're going to talk valuation because i know that's one of your big points about the u.s is that it's still climbing as much as europe but it's it's it, relatively. It lo- it just looks more expensive, right? Yeah, it does. And and I think uh, another big surprise is that you said six percent for the S and P five hundred cash index. It's more or less the same for the Nasdaq one hundred. There's not a big difference at this point in time um, on the cash index. And I think that's a big surprise given the the headlines and a lot of the focus on AI. We've been talking about that in Nvidia. Um, and as you say, I mean the valuations on 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 U.S. equities are just one of the highest we have in the world. Um, Japan has become rather expensive, especially relative to its own history. We can always talk about whether there is a danger zone right now relative to everything else. I don't think that's the case, but it's certainly against itself become, you know, very overboard and very, very uh, expensive. Um, uh, 
and the U.S. is just a relative case. It is getting pretty expensive. I'm going to t- I'm going to write about it later this week when we close the uh, the months of February, and then we'll have new data points. And then, um, I, I, you know, I think the, the headline I'm thinking about is something like, uh, "Here we go again." Um, the fever is back, um, and, and I think it, it sort of resembles what's happening. We're getting very close to one and a half standard deviations in uh, in terms of valuation above the historical average, and people are saying, well, standard deviations, what is that? Well, the equivalent is that we're getting back to those levels we had around the dot-com bubble and the levels we had in 2021 when we had the, the second technology bubble. Um, it's just something we want to flag. The market can always be irrational and take us much higher uh, for longer if there is enough appetite, but it's just... I would just say if you're new to the investing world and you're coming into this market, I would not be jumping with both feet into the uh, into the pool and just gobble up everything you can in terms of U.S. equities. I would definitely think uh, think a little bit deeper about it. So where would you go? Would you think Europe, Japan, China? I, 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 I well, we talked about China tactically, but if you're an investor, I don't think China is the is the place to go. I, I think Japan is a nice for 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 diversification. I think Europe. From a valuation perspective, uh, gives you less risk, and it al- it also has a better risk diversification than the U.S. equity market, which is getting extremely concentrated. Um, but otherwise, when you have extended equity valuations like now, it's always uh, that's always a uh, it's always a time for reflection and whether actually it it could make sense to increase maybe le- maybe the the bond exposure um, because that that cushions your portfolio against a setback. So really, diversification—that's always important. But maybe in a situation like this, where things get a little bit stretched, and I guess in Europe we also have—I mean, mac- the macro figures aren't necessarily looking as good as they are in the U.S. So, and and that's an important point. I'm glad you brought it up. So, uh, you know, City uh, City Group has this City Surprise Index, and uh, if you look at the U.S., if you look at the U.S. economy, it has surprised on the economic figures almost uh, nonstop for a year now, which is very unusual. Um, there is a, a classic mean reversion to this, so it's it is only a matter of time before we will begin to talk about the U.S. economy disappointing versus the expectations. Uh, we have had a year, which and we've talked about it, John, like 2023. It was really the the big surprise year and the year where the recession, the 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 biggest cold recession in history, never came in 2023 because of exactly and that. And evaporated really fast. I mean, we were talking about the idea that we should talk about that all throughout 24, right? That how, how whether we would get that recession or not, but now we're here two months into the year and and i mean it's almost dissipated yeah but peter i think uh, actually uh, that was more or less what i had left on my paper is there anything that you feel like i have omitted that is crucial to this conversation? no i just um i think the the last point is just emphasizing this that when things are going nicely and we have the strong momentum it's very easy as an investor to get carried away and um you, you need to try to enforce the opposite feeling that you actually need to be cautious and not greedy when you get to these extended levels. Yeah, and obviously something that we're always pounding the table for is diversification because it really uh, increases what is called the risk-adjusted return, so you get more for the money you put in. But uh, Peter, as always, thank you so much for coming here and making us all smarter on the equity markets. It's a pleasure. And uh, to everyone out there listening, thank you so much for listening. We will be back anytime soon. And on behalf of everybody here at Saxo, from Peter and myself, my name is Soren Otto. Happy trading.